Musically, I felt we were progressing in leaps and bounds. Some of the stuff on this and the Rubber Soul album was brilliant. There's nothing like it. I don't think they changed style or anything intentionally. It was a growing process. Trying, you know, just learning and growing and we used to travel along on tour in the car when we had a new album and just for hours and hours be thinking and just saying titles, things that maybe titles I remember specifically on that Revolver album. It was good because, you know, it went round and round. We suddenly thought, hey, what does a record do? It revolves, great, you know, and it, so it was a revolver. But it seemed so simple, it's perfect. When they was fab, I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Revolver's out, and Apple has actually given us a little bit more. Not a whole lot, but a little bit more. First off, if you go onto YouTube and you look at every song, they have actually made, I wouldn't quite call them videos, but they've made little video projects to accompany each song, all of which are based on the idea of Revolver. You know, in some, it's a kaleidoscope effect. In some, it's the record spinning around. In Tomorrow, whatever knows, it's two tape loops. So, worth your time, even if you're not just looking to listen. Right. Turn off your mind. Relax and float downstream. But separate from that, they actually did what I would call a real video that would be shown on MTV if such a thing still existed and played <laughs> in music videos. Right. right, if it was a music channel. They actually went out and hired somebody to hand paint all the individual cells in this video. The mystery and the marvel of the Beatles is the way they're rediscovered with every new generation. Their music always seems to inspire, essentially art creating art. That was certainly true for M. Cooper, a filmmaker and animator given the chance to turn one of their songs into a living painting. I've always been a Beatles fan, and when I saw the opportunity to work on I'm Only Sleeping, it was just, like, really amazing. It kind of sparked a huge load of ideas straight away for me. It's just a beautiful song, and it's just got so much in there. Using hand-painted animation cells, more than 1,300 in total, she built up the work frame by frame. Apple actually hired this woman. There is a making of video, and you can see her process as she goes off and hand paints all of these individual cells in this I'm Only Sleeping video. It's pretty cool. It's appropriately sort of hazy, and John Lennon actually looks like John Lennon, which doesn't always happen in artistic representations of him. Right. It has kind of a lethargic feeling, which works for the song. And then you, you get a, a dreamlike sequence, which is completely unlike the dream sequences you get in Yellow Submarine. It actually feels much more like a real dream. You have beetles floating in and out. You have Brian coming in and going, and you have the scenery changing. It could only be accomplished using oil paint. Right. I had originally thought that it was a digital thing, but after I saw this making up, it's like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. Good colors. They did a good job. I'm hoping that what you get is a sense of just being kind of swayed or held or just kind of taken with the stream almost of the painting. We were complaining about the Taxman video and they definitely seem to be 
doing two different classes of videos. Some of which are just, oh, we'll just throw something off just to have something visual to accompany the song on YouTube. And then some of them, they actually seem to be putting some effort into. Well, they're really promoting this. I'm thinking they're trying to challenge Taylor Swift. And they did. They didn't beat Taylor Swift, although they did beat her in the physical sales. Okay, well, they win. Taylor Swift won the week for the album and Revolver won the week in the physical sales. So, you know, great. They put a commercial on Colbert, which really surprised me. It's like, oh, wow, they really did spend some money on this. Well, they must have made a profit on Get Back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of which, there's a video by a a rap group. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to present our next act. Please give a very warm welcome to Nadia's Redskins. Came a long way from the Ville, damn right. Which is intentionally sort of all these Beatle references. And, And I mention it because when they get to the end and they're doing their let it be get back thing it's a combination of let it be and get back To the public consciousness, the two projects have seemingly melded together. (laughs) They put in captions like at the end of part one of Get Back. This one guy gets mad at this other guy and walks out for a week. (laughs) It is not safe for work. It has curse words in it, but we'll put a link to it on the Facebook group. Yeah. Securing the banks across the land, we need the Beatles, bro. All right. uh, So we are on to week three this week. It is the first of the two outtakes discs. Right. Those two discs, for me, are worth the price of the album. I've really enjoyed listening to all of it. It's kind of like the Get Back film in that you learn a lot that you didn't know. Yeah, no, this really gives you a feel for their creative process, how they came into the studio and built things up from an idea. Right. Very much so. We've read Lewison and we've heard these bootlegs, but here we have what would be the equivalent of the Lennon Evolution mixes, and you can really see their process. And it really was what they've always said, that one or two of them would write the song together enough to a point that they would come in and they would actually put down take one on tape while the others learn the song. Right. That way they documented all of their ideas as they were coming. And I've mentioned before that these days you look at songwriting credits and it seems to be a team effort, five or six people working on a song. Well, these tapes show that's exactly what the Beatles were doing. They didn't credit everybody, but they were moving the song along from a very small idea often. They would move very, very quickly. And as we find out right at the start of this record, you know, we start with Take One of Tomorrow Never Knows, which we've had for a while. We had a version of this on Anthology 2, but this one certainly sounds better. Yes, it does. Hearing it for the first time on an Anthology, you went, ah, but it was still muddy and it just sounded not good. It reminded me of the quality of um, the candle burns. Not quite that bad. Well, very muddy and you couldn't make a lot of stuff out, but this uh, really improves that. And Giles says he did not use Mal on any of these outtakes. That These are just raw tapes. Although, I mean, of course, they were recording on multi-track, and they weren't putting, like, lots and lots of instruments on any single track. So he could actually, you know, pull the stuff out and mix it. Right. And just cleaning things up, EQs. There, there's a lot of stuff that has come about since that does help. Take one is very different than the final version. About the only thing that's the same is that John is there just 
earnestly playing this single chord. Right. And it's odd. The timing is strange. It's almost as if there was an effort not to make it sound normal because, you know, his vocal timing is behind the beat. The beat is different than on the final version, but his vocal is very behind the beat. And my son listened to it and he said, you get the impression that George Martin was in the control room with his head in his hands (laughs) going, okay. (laughs) Because, you know, they hadn't done anything that non-commercial. But it was still very much the first song on the album. So they're coming off of Rubber Soul and they're coming off of the single and, you know, Paperback Rider and Rain, I guess Rain, you kind of start to see them moving in this direction. And, you know, even though this is the last song, this is the first thing they recorded. Lyrically, it's all there. So it might have been the thing that was most ready at that point. It may very well be. Because, I mean, they were still very busy during this time. They weren't just recording. They were living their lives. Right. They were spilling their guts to Maureen Cleave. <laughs> Amongst other things, yes. This was... April, so while not absolutely imminent, there was a tour on the horizon. Was Take Two, the one we don't have, recorded on that same first day, do you know, the 6th of April? I don't know. From all accounts, it broke down anyway, but I was just curious. To be accurate, it was still called The Void at this point. Yeah, it didn't pick up the Tomorrow Never Knows title until pretty late in the process. Right. The next thing we get is not really an outtake. It's something that we've actually had for years and years. It's the uh, XEX version of Tomorrow Never Knows. Mono Mix, RM for Remix, not RM for Remaster, 11. So it is more or less the finished version, but slightly different. This was on the first pressings of the British mono. There were somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 copies pressed. And George Martin got one of them and listened to it and said, no, 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 that's not right at all. And actually went and had them redo the album. Wow. So it's rare, but not that rare. Hmm. You can still find them at a fairly reasonable price on eBay. On the 27th of April, nine mono mixes of the track, still entitled Mark One, were made at Studio Three by producer George Martin and engineer Jeff Emmerich. And from those nine mono mixes, number eight was temporarily marked as best. The duo returned to the same studio again on June the 6th and made a further three mono mixes, of which number 11 was selected and that became the new best and was marked for inclusion on the album. The cutting tape was duly assembled and arrived at Room 8 at Abbey Road on the 6th of July, where Chief Cutting Engineer Harry Moss made the first mono cutting of the album and then sent it to the factory for pressing. It was late in the evening one early July night when the telephone rang at Abbey Road. They wouldn't have been surprised to hear George Martin on the other end, but one can only imagine their consternation when he ordered them to stop the presses so he could substitute the mixes of Tomorrow Never Knows. If any one of EMI's other artists or producers had requested such a change, it would have almost certainly have been denied. But as this was the Beatles, EMI had no choice but to accede to his request. Harry Moss was no stranger to recutting Beatles albums, as nearly all of their previous albums had, for one reason or another, required recuts. So it can't have been much of a surprise that when he came into work on the morning of Thursday the 14th of July, he found a job sheet on his desk instructing him to recut side two of the mono revolver. That actual document is shown in a tiny picture on page 104 of the Beatles in Mono book from the box set. You know, it's, I guess, was it Get Back that Paul supposedly did more or less the same thing? Yes. That seems to happen a lot. You know, George remastered the White Album over here in America. Well, so they say. I mean, he he certainly did something, but uh, 
I don't think he remastered the whole record. Right. Probably just remastered his songs, but I, I don't know what he did, but apparently there was some problem with the way he felt like it sounded and took steps to change that. Back to 1966. And although EMI had agreed to accept the change, it made it clear that it had no intention of scrapping the discs it had already pressed. So the differences are John's vocals louder. It, it rings out over the effects much more prominently. The fade is slightly longer, and there's more piano, as you note. And then the effects are also slightly different. Right. One of the other differences between the two is, you know, that first version is one chord that goes through the song. By the time they come to this version, which is, it, I don't know what we call it. It's Remix 11, but it's a second version. With all the tape loops, Martin changed Lennon's idea in that it's no longer just one chord. The tape loop actually changes the chord where it kind of needs to be, and then it comes back. There's a timing change. There's a chordal change. Ringo's change of the pattern of drumming really affects the the impact of this song. Yeah, I just think George Martin just kind of made it more commercial. This weird song he made more commercial. Maybe the Beatles had decided, oh, we're going to put this one out on the album. And George Martin said, no, 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 that's not the one I decided was going out. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to tell the boys. I'm just going to go and replace this without anybody other than the record company knowing. <laughs> right. This thing goes into three versions of Got to Get You Into My Life. And they're all really cool. Yeah. Three versions, but three different versions. Although I think the second and third are the same basic track. That's where you really see the evolution of how this band worked. The first one, again, is the one that we're more or less familiar with from Anthology. It's the, you know, I Need Your Love version of uh, Got to Get You Into My Life. Uh, it's slightly longer at the beginning and the end here. And we do get some new chat between uh, John Paul Ringo and George Martin. Right. George is there trying to figure out the title of his next song, looking through an Apple catalog. <laughs> he's not contributing <laughs> to this conversation, although he does the count in. Yeah. So you know he's there. So how do we get into it? Well, well George carries on counting, but you just start on three. Well, no, we fade it in, you mean, after. But not, not fade in, just bring it in from wherever it comes in, and you don't get the... You just switch it, it in, so you don't get any, any the organ starting up. That's what you mean. Well, you get that. Yeah, but if you do it before, we'll cut you uh, cut that bit off. No, I don't see how you're going to get any different sound from that. You can get the organ without the stars of it. Why though? Because it won't be turned on. No, you only what? counted one. Five, three, 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 Yeah, this it has a different swing to it. Acoustic guitar, that whole somehow, some way. Got to get you into my life. Somehow, some way. That's a complete wrong way to go. <laughs> I kind of hear the Love and Spoonful influence on this version. We talked about Daydream and we talked about what John Lennon was listening to at the time. I can hear that sort of creeping into this version. I, yeah, that, that's valid for sure. As with the Anya Bird Can Sing, that was their process. In Get Back, we saw them sort of playing 50s and oldies. Here, it's our song, but we're going to play it in the style of somebody else. Then we'll move that slowly outward until it becomes more of a Beatles sounding track. Well, both John and Paul talk about, you know, how a lot of times they will take another song as kind of a model of a feel. And so I'm sure some of these songs in their early stages sound more like the influence that it was taken from. And then they mold and craft and they really kind of pile on a bunch of ideas and then start removing things and changing things. And so this is just a great insight on how they worked, how they developed their songs. That's exactly what we were talking about earlier. It's all here. I can see that John and Paul might have walked in and said, okay, you know, we've got this song. Here's how it goes. And then they threw in some ideas and then they get to take five and it's like, 
okay, here's the arrangement. Right. With the understanding that, okay, it's not going to be the final arrangement, but here's the arrangement we're going to play to work through to something else. In the model, it's heavily guitar, and a lot of the parts that the horns end up playing are played on guitar. And then they're substituted in, and then they pull the guitar out. And then you have this horn arrangement, and they have that. It's in the song more often than it ended up being. They took a lot of that out. Uh, and they also changed the harmonies. Oh, yeah. Got to get you into my life somehow, somewhere. I need your love, I need your love, I need your love, I need your love, into my life, well, somehow, someway. The need your love is now, uh... Get you in, into my life, about to get you in my life. And I actually really like those harmonies i think the arrangement they ended up with is is pretty great so i don't miss that necessarily okay fair enough i'm glad it's here i'm glad we've got it (laughs) yeah this is how they worked in the studio we're going through da vinci's notebooks at this point (laughs) or we're looking at shakespeare's crossing out the names (laughs) right no 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 no, i don't don't like that name we're gonna go with romeo (laughs) brunhilde That is then followed by what they called take eight of the second version, which is really where the horns come in. We've had a truncated version of this for a while. Giles Martin has clearly liked this version of the song. He made a little outtakes tape, which plays before love in Vegas. And this was on it. And this was on it. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with, there was a project that the, uh, Beach Boys did called Stack of Tracks. And they did that. They put out their songs with just the horns or just the backing tracks. It's an amazing curio in any band's discography in the last 60 years to put out an album by a group of guys who are known for their vocals and do just the music. It's an incredible piece of work. I mean, you really get to hear all the minute details that you would have missed with the vocals on top. And the track selection is great. I mean, Little St. Nick is on here, which, again, for some reason, the people at Capitol wanted the Christmas songs on these compilation albums. I don't know who the hell was doing that over at Capitol. But it's fun to really hear the backing track without the layer of voices on top. And this is that for me, is you get to really hear the horns. I don't know if Paul is singing off mic or if it's just on a different track that they didn't mix in. And all we get is, is some bleed through. I would have loved to have gotten Paul's isolated vocal from this version just to see what was going on. Yeah, I can't really tell whether it's a vocal we know or... It's not any of these other vocals. He does some ba-da-dum, ba-da-ba-da-dums for the lyrics in the middle there, where he just sort of, kind of like he did in uh, Maxwell Silver Hammer. Ah. Where he, he had the words in front of him, but he just didn't feel like singing them. <laughs> He's singing ba-da-dum, ba-da-dum, and John goes, yeah. don't change that. I know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) John was off somewhere else. Not going to offer that advice here, but you can just barely make out what he's saying. And you can tell he's doing the screamy thing much earlier than he does in the final version. He almost does it all the way through the song. Well, I'll have to listen to that one again because I'm missing all that. It sounds like it's potentially a really cool vocal. Right. Considering that Giles had the capability of taking all that stuff out, should he wanted. I guess it's in there for a reason. <laughs> Some of the later overdubs are missing. Uh, the extra vocal tracks, the tambourine, the organ. Basically, all the finishing parts of the song are not there yet. Right. But it's getting there. And obviously, like you say, Paul would do another lead vocal, would do a final lead vocal for this. I could see that this was a tape that perhaps they took home to listen to before they started adding all the overdubs you just mentioned. You know, maybe even it was just Paul and Ringo or something in studio with George Martin, and they made up these tapes and to hand out to to John and George. And it's like, well, okay, come up with the other parts that we'll need for this to finish it. Right. 
this moves on to the Love You 2 series. We start with Take 1, which, again, it's Take 1. It's clearly not intended to be the finished version. Right. It's more or less George teaching the song, although I guess Paul has heard it. Yes, that could be. He would only have to run through it once before Paul had a little part. (laughs) But I actually think that's George's part because of what comes later. The idea of holding the note on top. Me. That's his idea because that's the thing that he goes with when Paul adds a harmony later on. It messes that up and he takes Paul's part out, even though Paul's part's actually kind of cool. It goes back to, again, something we learned from Get Back, that the Beatles would always go for the harmony part first, even if it wasn't right. Yeah. Let's try singing some harmony. (laughs) Right. It's true. This is a cool take because, first of all, it's kind of what John does. The chord does not change, and he's not even sure of the melody for the first two verses. It's not until he comes back to that third verse where he sings the melody as it eventually was. And he also already knew what his sitar figure was going to be because he sings it before the song starts. It's also interesting that he either wasn't aware or wasn't sure just how good he was on the sitar. As we'll find out, he was writing a little bit more ambitious piece than he could play. You look at the difference of what he did on Norwegian Wood to this, he clearly has immersed himself in two Indian styles. But I think this is another one that Ravi thought was pretty trashy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, and as we were saying that some of John's demos sound like something that could be on the Plastic Ono Band demos disc, this really sounds like something that could be in the All Things Must Pass demos disc. Yeah, you know, we've got those two discs of George just playing stuff uh, for All Things Must Pass in very much the same style. George and the acoustic guitar and one mic. Right. Yeah, he could have done this so, at home. I don't. Mean, I don't think he did, but he could well, have. Like Paul's you know. there, obviously. So, and you can also tell that George was learning songwriting by listening to John's demos. Because it's very much in line with how John would write a song. I can see that. George is still very early in the process of really becoming a major league songwriter. Right. I'd be interested to know in what order he wrote these tunes. And the fact that we know that right around here he was writing uh, Art of Dying. Right. That at least two or three of the additional All Things tracks were being written right around this time. That's kind of nuts to think about. Yeah. You know, I don't know what his demo of Art of Dying would be or what it's like. Yeah, we've never heard it. We don't have a bootleg of it. Because, you know, the version with Clapton just screams. You think of that song in a 66 version would have been completely different. Well, I could see a demo much along these lines, you know, just George and the acoustic guitar just pounding out the rhythm and singing whatever lyrics he might have had. Right. And I could also see why John and Paul and George Martin would listen to that. No, we don't want that right now. Go right. go back and work on it some more. Maybe we'll come back to that later in re- four years. You really want to sing about Mr. Epstein at this point? <laughs> yeah, this is true. Okay, next is the unnumbered rehearsal of Love You Too, which is really George showing off and demonstrating his sitar skills. Yeah, and the difference between Norwegian Wood and this is pretty big. Uh, He has clearly mastered some technique. And the other thing which I find interesting is when he starts singing the Indian notes coming in. It sounds a lot to me like the stuff that's in Raga, the exercise that Ravi was actually teaching George. Was Rob involved with George at this point? I mean, I know he was listening to records and he had met him. 
but I didn't know that he was actually teaching him. This is probably a little bit early for that. But if that's a standard, if that's the sitar equivalent of, uh, you know, do, re, mi, or chopsticks <laughs> or something. Right. Then it wouldn't have been all that much of a deal for George to have gotten anybody, whoever was teaching him sitar at the time would start with, okay, play these scales. Yes, for sure. That's all it is. It's scales on the sitar. And Paul's playing the tambora. Where did Paul learn to play the tambora? <laughs> he picked it up. <laughs> As we know, Paul McCartney can play any instrument anywhere at any time. That's what I mean. You know, I don't know when John learned slide. They had the ability to pick up instruments and get something good out of them. We get about a minute and a half of this, at which point George stops the take because his fingers are killing him. <laughs> right. Well, ow. I just can't do this right now. He learned some technique, but he was still not good at the sitar yet, I would no, say. No, he wasn't fluent at all. But for little Western kids looking for the next Beatle record, it sounded pretty exotic and pretty good. I wrote that one on the sitar. I got a local Indian bloke from London to play tabla on it. That was purely an exercise to get sitar and tabla into the Beatles. This is really a very nice minute and a half. And you can see where George is going from this. And, and we talked about how the remix really leads you much more into Within You Without You. This little bit in particular shows the Indian direction that George is going to go in. Yeah. Not just on this song, throughout his whole Indian exploration. Yes. Then that is followed by take seven of Love You Too. Granny Smith, take seven. This is a reduction of take six. Oh, yeah. One, two, three, four. Each day just goes so fast. The piece at the beginning does not yet exist. Again, maybe George couldn't play all of the sitar continuously through the whole song you get the long sitar introduction that's not there yet i guess he had to come up with a worked out separate piece so the song didn't start with that it started with the we do have all of the rest of the overdubs that we would get in the final version the vocals are pretty much all there you get the tambourine and the fuzz guitar and you get <laughs> Paul's vocal harmony, which would get mixed out. <laughs> I thought it was cool. I really liked hearing it at first, but I could see how it took away kind of the purity of what George was trying to do. Might start to grade on George in particular. Well, it's Paul being Paul. <laughs> we want the kids to get into this. We want the kids to dig it. They like listening to me. Let me <laughs> sing a little bit here. Oh, Harsh. I mean, it's a clever little part, but in the piece of music, I think George made the right decision. As they always do. <laughs> we move on to the two sides of the single. We get takes one and two of Paperback Writer. Yes, a short take one. Okay, let's try it. Hey, right, Paul, it's on. One, two, three, four. warm-up more than anything else uh, it just collapses it's nice hearing all the bits in the riff guitar that gets lost in the mix of the single and the vocals so just hearing the guitar is really clean it's nice i won't play at the party giles did decide to edit this down because we have a full take one on bootleg and there's some comments from paul and george bard nothing too substantial but they're there which giles has just sort of edited out Okay, go. Here we go. Here it goes, Paul. Oh, yes, Paul. 
going on. Tighten it up, tidy it up, I guess. <laughs> Notably, it's George Martin there saying, it's all yours now, Paul. Maybe Giles just didn't like the way his dad said that, but <laughs> no. But the rest of this take two is the backing before we get overdubs. Yeah. There's no lead vocal, and it's great to hear them playing, to hear what it sounded like to the four of them. Yeah, sounds great. And you can see what they were trying to reproduce on stage, but weren't all that successful at doing. <laughs> yeah, a little tough. But having heard that version, I could see how they could feel that they could take it on stage. They played it as a band. And harmony singing is what they did. We can play this. It's not too hard. It makes it much more clear why this was the song they added to their set. They certainly weren't going to add rain to the set. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. <laughs> that would have been so cool. Yeah. So we move on to uh, Rain Take 5. We've had this artificially created before, but this is the first time we've actually heard it from the tapes. Right. And it's fast. It is very fast. Yeah. It would be interesting to know whose idea that was. I would guess it was George Martin's. Interesting idea. I mean, the Vera Speed had been his baby. And I mean, of course, we're coming off of In My Life. Yeah. Where it's going the other way, you know. I don't know what it sounded like when John brought it to him. You know, whether he played it at the speed that the record eventually played at. But he was experimenting with his voice in that he would hold out things. I mean, when the rain comes, you know, singing the M rather than the O, he, he holds things out. He does the same thing in Tomorrow Never Knows, where every word that ends in ing is held out that way. From the beginning, and holding in that part of it. So he was kind of playing with the way he sang. And if that might suggest to Martin, well, that's that lethargic thing. And then taking his idea from, as you said, Rubber Soul said, well, let's speed it up. And then when we slow it down, it'll have this thing that you're doing, in effect. Well, I mean, of course, John doesn't sing until it's already slowed down. Yes. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they did the backing. Then what's also kind of amazing to realize is that Paul overdubbed his bass to the fast backing track. <laughs> right. And, you know, so he's, he's playing his bass there to Ringo playing that just outrageous rhythm at that speed. Right. It's like 17% you have to slow it down. That's a heck of a lot. The one place you can tell the difference is in both of these versions, you can hear John going one, two at the beginning. And, you know, it's normal in the fast version. One, two. And then in the slowed down version, it's like one, two. <laughs> one, two. You can very clearly hear where the speed went to. Right. <laughs> John sang his lead over the slowed down version. Yeah. It would have been way too affected impossible well yeah it just wouldn't have worked right so we get that and then we get the slow down version with john's lead vocal <laughs> right <laughs> and it's not just one lead vocal he did two of them they're two different lead vocals on right and left ah. kind of double tracking but he doesn't seem to be really trying to match himself all that well he's singing the song in the same way at the same tempo but he's not necessarily trying to get everything to line up perfectly right i think he definitely worked on sound, which is why I was talking about the way he sang his vocals. In particular, if you listen to the They Run and Hide Their Heads or They Might As Well Be Dead or The Weather's Fine, there you can tell that they are two separate vocals. I just thought of the thing that really illustrates what I'm talking about when he says, can you hear me? He's really playing with the consonant sounds. And then what's kind of cool is, so they took those two vocals, they joined them together into a single vocal, and then they ADT'd that. <laughs> They're just playing around now. I guess. <laughs> what's missing from this version, the backing vocals haven't been recorded yet. The tambourine's not there. And 
John's favorite, the backward tape bit, had not been introduced to the song yet. Yeah. This is the intermediate version to the final version that we get on the record. And the evolution is just really kind of cool. That's what's great about this record. You really get to hear how they work, how their minds work. Next up, we get Dr. Robert, which is your favorite. (laughs) And they mess with this take a lot. Here we get basically the entire version of the song, which we've never had before. Right. There's lots of cool little bits you can hear. The whole well, well, well bit is much clearer in a way. You can break the parts apart easier. And most notably, you got a whole 41 seconds, which they just cut out. in making the final version omitted the 41 seconds that are here and another one of those weird mixes thing the version of this which was on the mono american yesterday and today capital demanded that emi send them over three new tracks that request was approved dr robert included john's comment there at the end which okay uh we'll for some reason, people had always interpreted it as being, okay, Herb. I don't know if they thought it was a pot reference or what. Huh. So here we actually get to hear what John's actually saying. It's a, a okay, eh, well, Strawberry Fields type thing. <laughs> Turn me on, dead man. And that is followed by a here, but not on the mono yesterday and today. Paul replies, no, you won't. Again, it sounds like something you had to get back. Yeah. Mr. Lennon, do we really have to talk about this now? <laughs> and what has got to get you in my life about? <laughs> I will still go with this about LSD. It's not about pot. <laughs> but... Right. Thinking about it, I have kind of come to your conclusion. It makes more sense. It's McCartney's memory has failed, and he's decided that it was a year later than it actually was when he first tried it, acid. Right. And by saying the song is about pot, it's a bit politically correct a bit more politically correct yeah you can't really be seen advocating for massive lsd use (laughs) (laughs) even though he wasn't john lennon and he didn't eat it like candy as john liked to tell us right the other thing you're correct john is seeing bob roberts at least twice (laughs) yeah i always believe that with the clean vocal unlike the other rumor there about herb (laughs) there is no question that that's what he's singing it's funny Bob being the nickname for Robert and rhyming with doctor. I mean, it's just perfect the way Lennon played. The edit which we were referring to, that occurs between 1 minute 53 seconds and 2 minutes 34 seconds using this version. well 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 you're feeling fine well 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 he'll make you dr robert then they edit it right there what's cut out is ring my friend outside you call dr robert he's a man you must believe helping everyone in need no one can succeed and then that goes back into the well 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 and after the second well 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 that's where the edit was made 
So that's 41 seconds worth of the song, which just got obliterated. Huh. I don't even know how the song goes now. <laughs> Maybe you need to call Dr. Roberts. <laughs> no doubt. The song wasn't ready when they gave it to Capitol for yesterday and today. Maracas were removed between the uh, mono UK and the, the stereo version of the song. But the maracas are there in the US version. And on May the 12th, in the space of less than two hours, George Martin, together with engineers Jeff Emmerich and Jerry Boys, created mono mixes of three of the new completed songs, which were destined for the next album, Revolver. So I think they just gave them away before everything was finished. The backward parts on I'm Only Sleeping were better on the British version. They were just kind of incomplete on the United States version. Damn that tape texture. <laughs> and then, I mean, you know, the, the difference between the mono and the stereo, it's some of the things we were talking about. Giles has improved the stereo mix. On Dr. Robert, he's made it more like the mono. John's vocal comes out to the fore yeah. in the mono version. In the stereo version, it was a little bit buried. That's definitely an improvement. So there's not only that, there is Capital did weird things with the fold downs. And apparently at one point, one of their stereo masters of yesterday and today used a real stereo version of Dr. Robert. It's like, whereas for years it had always just been a fold down huh. or I guess a fold up artificial stereo, fake stereo. Yeah. Beatles had no control over what Capital would do. That documentary that went around for three or four days about George Martin talking about all the Beatle albums. He discusses why Capital did it that way. It had to do with copyright payments. And there would be a loss of money in the United States because they didn't figure it the same way as they did in the European countries. And so it, it wasn't just a flippant reason. For Capital, it was simple economics. Fewer tracks meant less royalties to pay. And the price of an album would be the same regardless of how many tracks were on it. And that all added up to bigger profits for them. Well, they, they have an excuse. Now, whether whether I believe that that's completely the reason or not, I don't know. I mean, yes, because they did the same thing to the Stones records and they did the same thing to the Kinks records. So, you know. Right. But the fact that Dave Dexter felt that he knew better certainly didn't hurt the capital excuse. Well, I think the fact that they cut George Martin out of the thinking process, like he didn't count, they totally misunderstood the relationship. Well, and it may have been George Martin paying them back. is like, well, okay, you're not going to include us here. I will give you substandard product. And I don't care if it's not finished or not. Al? It's Beatle product. It will succeed, but eh, it's not finished. That's all right. <laughs> I don't believe that. Here you go, Dave. <laughs> no, they believed in what they were doing. and Oh, for sure. I'm being a little bit flippant, but... Right, but it does make you wonder why. I mean, did they just get set out and then somewhere along the line they added something? Or, I mean, clearly George had to recut his guitar parts for the backwards bit. They were still working on the song. Yeah. They knew it wasn't finished when they gave it to Capitol. Yeah. The last two tracks on there, which we sort of had, but well, sort of not. Uh, yeah, this was this was not, not the the highlight of the uh, outtakes. Well, I, it would have been if we hadn't heard it before. I well, mean, it was yeah. definitely the highlight of the anthology outtakes. Uh, Agreed. Uh, so, so we start with. It's hard to get excited new. about something you heard thirty years ago. Yeah, this is true. But we start with, we st well, I mean, we only sort of heard this version before because the only way we had the non-giggling version of Anya Bird can sing previously was because, well, fan mixes. You could take the one that was uh, on the disc and the version which was on the video and pull stems and oops them and you would get a mono version of what is more or less this, this this first one this first version take two okay <laughs> um, well i mean you know but it but but the point is uh it's all the previous versions we've had of this were just mono it was all of this down on off of one track and here we actually get a stereo version of it yeah so uh Fair we enough. get the actual we get the actual count in that's for the first time yeah i think 
to my ear that the song evolved so much from this first track. There's other things that occurred before you got to that final bit. I'd like to hear more in the middle. Yeah, between between the two versions. Yeah. And, and even, actually, the version here is not exactly the same as what's on an anthology, but uh, we'll get to that here. Uh, the So Take Two was uh, provisionally considered best. Now, again, you know, as we were talking about with uh, Good Day Sunshine, um, they knew they weren't going to, this wasn't going to be the final version of the song. They knew that this was too much sounding like the birds. They had to have. Yeah. This may be uh, an example of what I was talking about of, you know, the, uh, the reason why the song was written, the influence that caused the song to be written is still right there. It's the bird. They did, they did a lot of work on this version. Uh, you know, you you got you got th- you you got John and Paul each singing a lead, and then you got John singing a double track to his own lead. You're right. You know, in addition to a bunch of overdubs, a uh, uh, bass tambourine, and two different lead guitar solos. So you know, there was there had to have been at least some thought that oh well, you know, maybe this is how we'll put it out. But the Beatles didn't really do pastiches in this style. I mean, not at least not until like back in the USSR, and that's not the whole song, right? So it's it's interesting that that they would even record to this extent. I mean, I it's not just we're gonna do take one and we're gonna do it like the birds, and then we're going to uh, figure out which direction we want to take this in. Eventually, it was that way, but you know, they they worked for a full day to get this version. Right. So, you know, it, it it could be they just had the ability to be fast, you know, um, and put something down. I mean, somewhere along the line, that guitar riff, da 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 da, da um, which is not really fleshed out, became the focus of that song. Yeah. I mean, it's here, but it's sort of, it's very incomplete. Yeah. Uh, so so then we move on to the version which we did get on anthology too although it's not exactly the same version. Uh, it's it's the one everybody loves. It's the John and Paul are very clearly stoned version of Andy Bergen saying. Well, so you say maybe they were just in a good mood. <laughs> well, I yeah. So I say I mean and this is John Lennon we're talking about. He <laughs> very well could have started pulling faces and Paul starts laughing and John starts laughing in response and they just cannot control themselves. No, I think they were high. <laughs> okay, well, one or the other or both of them. <laughs> Maybe one was stone and the other was not. <laughs> so uh, uh, what really the difference between this and the anthology version, uh, you, you can hear uh, bits and pieces which are really different in uh, John and Paul's singing when they're not laughing. <laughs> right uh you know there you can tell that there's a different set of overdubs that are on this version now whether you know all of those overdubs were on a, a single tape or whether they did multiple sets of overdubs and giles just decided on a slightly different set for this version than what's on the anthology version who knows yeah it's right i don't i'm not sure who or how those things got mixed for one project to the other. I mean, there could be more stuff that is not there. Yeah. I mean, uh, notably there's a, a bit of John, John's vocal, uh, uh, right before you tell me that you got everything you want, uh, where you can hear Paul saying, saying now, right. And then, I mean, that's not there in the, in the anthology version. Hmm. So, you know, it, like you say, it is a lot of the overdubs are the same, but there are also some that are different. Yeah. So uh, let's see what what do we have from "And Your Bird Can Sing." Um, uh, we have take two, uh, which is no overdubs, uh, bass or tambourine, 
lacking the guitar solo in the middle eight. Uh, that's on bootleg, and that ends with uh, Paul saying, that's it, yeah. Uh, then we have a, a second version of Take Two. So, I mean, we do have a lot of these that you're asking about. You know, what are some of these intermediate versions? Uh, 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 you At the end uh, of it, you can hear uh, John saying, that was it, wasn't it? And so that's, that's a round out there. Um, then we have, uh, the, the version, the, the oops version, which we had, which I spoke of previously. And then, uh, we have one more from the video, which is again, slightly different than, so, I mean, they clearly liked it <laughs> enough that they feel we need to hear all these different bits and pieces. <laughs> right. So pretty good for so, a piece of gobbledygook. <laughs> Well, and but it's a great song. Even you know, uh, the it's the guitar that makes it great, though. Yeah, you yeah. Know, the, you could hear by listening to these versions that it would not be the great song that it is without that guitar line, the double guitar line. I mean, all of all of take two just ends up being oh, okay. Well, that's kind of cool. That it's a bird's rip off, and then. They got stoned and they just could not do their oh their their overdubbing on the double track vocals. Right. Okay. So I mean that's effectively what we get out of these takes of Andrew Bird can sing. The song Andrew Bird can sing sounded too much like the birds, or as Elvis would say, the beards. <laughs> I finally saw that movie, by the way. What? The the Boz Lorman Elvis. The what? The Boz Lerman Elvis film. Oh, uh-huh. It's okay. I was a little bit disappointed that they did not find a way to fictionalize the meeting the Beatles scene. <laughs> well I mean they you know, it's the it's the usual sorts of fifties biopic thing. It's like, oh, Elvis came out of the army and there are the Beatles on the TV playing Ed Sullivan. I'm worried. Well. Okay. <laughs> you know, he left out about three years of his career. Uh, pretty much, because it, it sort of jumps from there right to the sixty, uh, the comeback special. Wow! There's a montage which covers the film years. But what a crappy I mean, movie that sounds like. <laughs> and there's there's some good and there's some bad, but uh, we're not here to talk about Boz Lerman or. Or Elvis, but the, I just thought I'd mention it. And since, well, that that all really is just in more or less the same time frame. <laughs> well, it looks like we have to schedule that for a show. <laughs> no, we're not doing a whole show on <laughs> on Boz Lerman's and, Elvis and film. why it's bad. <laughs> and well, a lot of a, we'll get a lot of debate on that. Let's put it that way. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker can't be all bad. Although Tom Hanks is one of the few people that could conceivably play both Colonel Tom and Brian Epstein. <laughs> I just think that if you're going to discuss Elvis and not talk about the effect his film career had on him, you've missed a huge insight into his life. Well, the uh, basically uh, the way the screenplay is written was that uh, Elvis went into drugs because he really wanted to be a dramatic actor and uh, the colonel wouldn't let him. That's how to sum up that half hour of the film. I see. And all this is getting cut out anyway. <laughs> well, not all of this, maybe, maybe most of it, but all right. So that is disc one of outtakes next week. We've got, Disc two, which has, I would say of these two discs, disc two is actually probably the better to listen to disc. Disc one is, is and disc one. I like, like I like a bootleg hmm. disc one. I actually, I actually like to put on and listen to. Huh? Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know what your thoughts on the matter are. I mean, they're, <laughs> well, you know, there, there's a bunch of stuff, which you said, uh, you're not going to put on a party. I, well, you know, maybe maybe the birds version of "And Your Bird Can Sing" and uh, maybe the other version of "Rain." I, I don't know what else you and oh, the "Got to Get You Into My Life." Yeah, those are three things you could play at a party off of this disc. Yeah, 
Uh, but it doesn't make it bad. It just makes it more of a uh, no historical document. And I love I, mean, it's, I love my bootlegs. Not that I yeah. Not that I have any bootlegs, but no, um, no, no. you know. But I don't play them for people. They're for my enjoyment and for <coughs> you know uh, that fandom thing. But you know, you're not really playing them for uh, entertainment at a party. <laughs> well, sometimes you do, but not you. You play them. You play them a little bit more frequently than you're gonna pull out that Yoko Ono record. <laughs> well, I probably would play Revolver, the the new stereo at the version party. at okay. the party. There we go. And and then after that, what are those other discs in there? Oh well, if yeah. you really want to hear them, if you know, if you want to go there, I will take you down. <laughs> but because um, you know, I can talk about the Beatles for a lot. Well, but, as we've shown. Yeah. Um so yeah, if you want to go there, I'll go. But I don't I don't play uh this stuff at, you know, for just people who drop by. This this does not this this disc does not need a grade, but uh it is a reason to own the set. For, yes. for the folks for the folks like us and the folks who are listening to this show, yeah, no, no, this both of these discs are great. Uh, like this disc is more something you split up. I still am not. I, I actually like better that they're doing it this way than the way they've done it in the past. Uh, you know, more or less going chronologically. Yeah. Whereas before they they went the Lennon route, which was oh we're going to make up, we're going to pull different takes and make up different copies of the album in the order of the album. <laughs> We don't yeah. necessarily need 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 it quite like that. No, yeah, but. I don't like that at all. Um, but yeah, the, this set—I mean, this set's worth getting just for the remix of Revolver. It's—I mean, it's really, really good. Um, and you know, these uh, session tapes are very good in understanding about the band and how it worked and, you know, um, well, and, and as we were saying, you know, we get almost as much insight into their creative process from these two discs as we did from the nine hours of get back. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to, to, to sit there and watch Yoko sit on a cushion for a little while. I like it. <laughs> you like Yoko sitting on the cushion? Sure. Why not? Sure, why not? Okay, uh, yeah. Cynthia, Cynthia, and Jane are not in the studio at this time, <laughs> so we, we don't have to listen to them, and we don't have to listen to Francie Schwartz, <laughs> right? But you know, so, I've, I've heard people were there. You know, uh, it seems like I've read that uh, who is it? Terry Gar sang on "Yellow Submarine" in the chorus. Did she claim that? Yeah. I don't know whether I believe that or not, mm-hmm. but I mean, of course we do know that there was a party. So, I mean, it's possible. Yeah. You know, but Terry Gar would have been awfully young at that point in time. All the better. I mean, <laughs> not, not that young, but. Uh, when was she born? Well, I mean, I think. Hello, Google. <laughs> there you go. Um, 19 okay so she would have been 22 yeah i suppose it's certainly possible and it was the party period yeah and she I was mean, cute yeah. and <laughs> i'm trying to little, remember little. I, I have read the story so i don't know if she was like you know one of the bag of nails people or you know i don't remember how exactly she ended up but but that was her claim but Yellow Submarine is not on this disc, so right. we'll save that for next week when we've had some time to look up details. There you go. All right. Uh, all right. Uh, very good. We will be back next week with a new show. And and you know what it's about. This too. Uh, all right. I'm looking it up right now. Let's see. She was in Pajama Party. She was a go-go dancer 
on Shindig and Hullabaloo. So she might have been around. Uh, she hung out with Rob Reiner, Albert Brooks, Harrison Ford. It doesn't say that she sang on Yellow Submarine, but she would have been in that crowd. Ah, attending... Uh, was in nine Elvis movies as a dancer and got to hang out with the Beatles, even attending their recording of Yellow Submarine and club hopping in London with them. It doesn't say she sang on it, but right. it says she was there. Well, the story I read was that she sang on it, but now we know it's, she was there. Yeah, we, we so, yeah, I, I will also probably cut that out, but that is a story for next week. Right. And if we can find any more on it, that might be, that might be a, a nice story. So, okay. So, cool. Yeah, we got we got through it, uh, and yeah, we know we know what we're doing next week. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim. Easter Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. The outtakes are like pencil sketches of the paintings. And we so we that's that's our approach. Like we're trying to go. This is how it developed. This is the this yeah. in the humanity of the process of just going. What's the secret behind the Beatles sound? It's like it's the Beatles. It's the fact that the the, the four of them made such a great noise together. You know, it's a, there's not a button that was pressed. You know, that's the secret. And you listen to those uh, outtakes, and you could hear. The collaborative process, it was still a very collaborative thing, wasn't it? I mean, there's the beginning of uh, Got to Get You Into My Life where they're all talking about at what point they should all come in and your dad's involved, you can uh, you can hear John, you can hear Paul. And it, Did you feel it was still very, very collaborative at that point? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was collaborative at every point. Pretty much all the way through, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that, I think there, I think, you know, whatever happened in the studio was a very different, different journey. Um, when they were making music, I don't think they ever lost. And it's more so, and I, and I know when I speak to Paul and Ringo, and we listen to the albums and stuff, their admiration they have for the other players, just as, as a musician. Yeah. The admiration they have for the other players is, is, is unquestionable. You know, you know, it's like, well, you know, I mean, you know, Paul goes, it's interesting you hear what George is doing here, or, you know, that there is that, there is that, you know, there's no drum like Ringo and, and, you know, and, and that's so John or that's it's it's really they know now it was the best band they've ever been in, just as enjoying being in a band. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but the scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.